We're the Nada Grande Boys. I'm Rodney Wood. And I'm Kyle Jackson. Welcome to the Nada Grande Outdoors podcast where we hunt it forward. We always figure it out. That's what we do. That's what we do. (laughs) (laughs) Take some editing before you put it out there. Yes. No, we don't ever edit crap. (laughs) It it takes some finagling. I don't know about editing. Yeah. But... uh, (laughs) I, I just hit record and we we just put out on. what we say, man. Yeah. It's just just the best way to do it. I am yeah. recording, by the way. I know you're recording. I saw you press the button. I've gotten savvy. I know when you're doing Finally, it. I'm picking it up. Midway through season two and three. Two and a half years in. We're good to go. We're good to go. So, um, yeah. Um, we haven't done one of these in a while. We've been doing live podcasts because we have been hadn't been able to get together for a while, huh? Yeah. So, it, yeah, people are going to get mad at us. We did a live podcast. I haven't even released that one on the podcast channel yet. Freaking slacker. It's uh, It's been a month. Dude. I, know. I know. It has been a month. Um, hey, so it's we did September. The, it's hunting season, man. Right. Priorities. Right. Yes. Um, <laughs> amongst other things. Yeah. Right. So we did the live podcast. I haven't released it yet, and we haven't even recorded any others. So we're recording this one. Um, and then we're going to record another one tonight. So that'll be three that I can release over the next three weeks. Which should but, give us enough time to hopefully get back together. If not, you be well, back for up sure, here for hunts. For sure, because I've got a hunt coming up. In, well, Maggie Maggie's has her hunt coming up in two weeks. So I'll be up here. I'll be back up here in two weeks anyway. Yeah. So, um, so. We'll, get, we'll get some more recorded then. And uh, get after it. It's Tell good, us about our guest. Good Kyle. to be back, and albeit uncomfortable, because we need to get new mics, new headsets. We, yeah, <laughs> we need we need to get a couple more headsets. If we had two more headsets, you know, I think that we would be it's, in pretty good shape. It's pretty much par for the course for 2020. Let's yeah. just be honest, it's, right? It's 2020. That's <laughs> yeah. what I tell everybody. It's 2020. It's 2020. It's 2020. Nothing. Nothing else needs to be said. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So this podcast, we've got wildlife biologist Lance Bernal. Um, he's the biologist for Vermejo, uh, which is one of Ted Turner's property, the largest of Ted Turner's properties, um, 550,000 ish. Acres, Con- yeah. contiguous acres, lar- largest contiguous piece of uh, privately owned property in the United States. Um, and to wrap your head around that, big damn ranch, big ranch. Big to ranch. wrap your head around that, it's uh, about nine hundred square miles, just about. So, pretty big. Yeah. So Lance does uh, Lance does all the uh, the biology, the the numbers crunching on the ranch so yeah um i'll let lance kind of kind of give us a background where he's from what he what uh got him here and uh i think we've got some really good um information that he's gonna hopefully share with us stuff that most people don't know about i think and i didn't prep him for this no so he's going in (laughs) blind but he's knowledgeable enough he's been doing it uh, long enough that he can he can answer most of these questions pretty easily um but I want you know I want them to talk about things like um, population modeling and surveys and how all that is set up because I think most people don't know how that's done. No, no, uh, they don't. So yeah. Lance, tell us about yourself. I'd, you know. Yeah. So um, obviously, my name is Lance Bernal. Um, I'm actually born and raised in New Mexico. I'm from San Diego Pueblo, New Mexico. Uh, it's a small little 
Native American reservation there north of Albuquerque. And uh, went to school in Albuquerque, left and went to Colorado State, got my undergrad there uh, in wildlife biology, and then came back to New Mexico and actually got to work a couple of years as a uh, technician at uh, the Valles Caldera when it was under the Valles Caldera Trust. So it's kind of where it got my feet wet doing some elk biology. And then um, I ended up going to Texas Tech and getting my master's degree in wildlife science. Um, did a calf mortality study there on the caldera with the, working with New Mexico Game and Fish. And that kind of sparked my interest in, into what I like to mainly the study is uh, predator prey dynamics you know how the predators can affect their prey and vice versa so um, i've been here at vermejo for five years and it's pretty much a dream job i always play it down <laughs> a little bit i said yeah it's all right but it is a dream job for most people yeah i mean i like you said five hundred fifty thousand acres roughly you know to go run around check animals check i mean there's places that I don't think people have been for hundreds of years or, um, and it's just a great place to work. So, yeah. Um, yeah, he definitely downplays it. Basically he's the biologist for <laughs> what, what you could consider a national park, right? Yeah. As much country as, as he has to cover and as many species as he has to cover. Yeah. Um, obviously he has focus points and things like that, but, uh, um, it's it's a big job. Yeah, most of my focus points is actually on on our big game management, uh, primarily the elk herd, but also mule deer, pronghorn, and turkey, which are uh, which are important for revenue, that type of stuff. So, um, right now, we're actually doing our fall surveys for elk. Um, we're we've got probably one more day left to to do those surveys, but and you do and you do those surveys via. Um, aircraft helicopter yeah we do helicopter we do a random point survey so. so tell us about that i don't when you say you're when you say random point survey i think other wildlife biologists will understand what yeah. you're saying but um you know this podcast is geared towards those who who are just getting into hunting or or even those who are who are hunting who maybe don't understand the backside of it and, and yeah. the wildlife biology that goes into it so so basically it's it's you're never going to count every animal on the property or in anywhere, really. So it, it's just a sample size. The way we use our, our, our survey is we have random points throughout the ranch. We fly the helicopter there to that point, and we'll do a circle within a mile um, of that point and count and classify as many elk that we see during that point. I also count deer, make notes on deer, um, bears that type of stuff but this is mainly for our elk herd so um we'll do two flights one in the morning one in the evening when obviously when elk are more active and then i'll get those numbers at after all we're done flying um look at our ratios and then make management decisions based on those ratios um like i said you're never going to count every animal so and people might want to wonder why are you doing it in september well we kind of get a full the the elk are more distributed throughout the ranch in September. Um, you know, they're rutting right now, so we get a better idea of where the elk are throughout the ranch. If you do them in the winter, you kind of get a bias. Um, you might not count all the bulls or see all the bulls. You might get a biased um, ratio, bull-to-cow ratio. Sometimes the calves 
are actually bigger, so you can you can't distinguish the cows and the calves as much. So, so like if you if you're doing it in the winter time, a lot of times it's it's easier to count probably greater numbers of animals because exactly. those cows tend to herd up in bigger herds during the winter time. Um, but it, like you said, if you you may or may not be able to classify those those calves, um, and that's actually a really important part that I'll let you touch on here in a little little bit. But um, and the other thing that happens once the breeding season's over, anytime but the breeding se- breeding season, for the most part, those bulls are solitary or, or batched up in, in yep, batch exactly. herds, and they disappear to the four winds and go hide in the deep timber, yeah. especially after the rut. And so wintertime, like you said, that's that's why he's saying that you sometimes a bias count because you're not catching those herd dynamics. Yeah. I mean every every state, you know, we do it because we're a private entity, we do it on our own, but every state uh agency does it different. I know uh New Mexico Game and Fish, they do theirs in the fall as well. Whereas you go north to Colorado, I think they do theirs in December, January. So every state has different ways on how they conduct their surveys. Um, so we, the good thing is that because we work, our fall surveys kind of lie with the state surveys. We can compare data and see what what we see versus what they see, and, and kind of come to a conclusion on well, what's the what's the elk herd doing in the region? I mean. Vermejo is probably close to 50% of just this one game management unit. So Yeah, and it's really important be, for the fact that it borders the Vivadol. Yeah. Which those herd dynamics, you know, we've said it before, those animals are no no respecters of boundaries. So yeah. our herd dynamics are affecting their herd dynamics and vice versa. Vice versa. So comparing that data is just common sense in, in sound wildlife management. Yeah. yeah. You you mentioned ratios. Talk a little bit about ratios and, and, and what you mean there so our listeners can kind of understand what you're looking for there and, and what that's all about. So the ratio is just the proportion of the herd if you break it down into calves and, and bulls. So usually it's based off of how many calves you count over the number of cows that you count. Um, so your, your cow is your your is, baseline. is your baseline, yeah, is your baseline. And so, As the breeding unit of the herd. Of the so. herd, yeah. So, you know, if you want a growing herd, you want your your cow-calf ratio to be, usually you say th- percentage, so 35% or higher. Um, you know, sometimes a low cow-calf ratio can indicate that the population is declining. Um, anything below 25 to or even less, you hear some ratios that are in single digits in some areas of the West. So there's usually a problem that's going on when your ratio is, is that low. Again, also with the on the bull side of things, if the ratio is fairly high, you got a high number of bulls. Um, and sometimes the way I break it down is how many, how many of those bulls are actually mature bulls. Mm-hmm. Um, and all that data goes into a model that was created uh, to give us a population estimate just for Vermejo. Um, and it is just an estimate. Like I said, you're never going to get the exact amount of animals on the ranch. So, um, but that's what that, and then that, that population estimate is what we based our harvest numbers off of. Gotcha. So layman's terms, I'll, I'll break it out real quick. So basically you're saying 
if you got 100 cows, mm -hmm. 35 calves, it's a growing herd, mm -hmm. 25 or fewer is a declining herd. In, in, be in between, I mean. And in between yeah. there is kind of stable. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, what's, that's what's you know, good... that's, that's just like what the research has said throughout the West. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. so that's what we go by as well. Sure. And then you take those models and you, I'm sure you got some sort of factor to figure out yeah. the population. And then you, once you figure out the population, you take success rates and then that determines your harvest number that you're of the number of tags that you're going to give out. Yeah, exactly. So, um, success rate, you know, and that's a lot different here. Yeah. It's a lot what, different than, than what they're looking at. than like what the state's looking at, yeah. you know, the state will have much lower success rates. I'm sure than, yeah. than the, what y'all have state's here. Average success rate for, for elk, they expect somewhere around 23 to 27% yeah. success wow. yeah. versus here, here on bull elk. We're at, 85%. Yeah. Success. Exactly. So it's, but it's, that it's, dynamic is very different yeah. because they're, they're going to have to use a different model to, to account Correct. for that. Yeah. But that's, yeah. it's a very important number. And that's one of the things that we've talked about, you know, um, in some of our other podcasts and how they determine how many tags and stuff are given mm -hmm. out is yeah, sure. They may give out a thousand tags for a unit, but they're only expecting to, 23 to 27. 230 yeah. animals. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now here it's very different. Y'all are expecting about 85% of the tags that you give to actually be harvested. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a, it's a different dynamic, but it's the same mass. Same, yeah. same, same, same idea. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we're, we're a trophy program, I hate to say, it, but I mean, that's what we, we advertise mature bulls, mm -hmm. mature animals. And so we're probably at, very conservative. I mean, if when I run the numbers, we're probably maybe taking five to seven percent of the bull population. Some places might target ten, you know. But if you're going to operate in a trophy operation, you want to keep your mature your mature animals in the herd as much as possible. So we're we're very conservative in terms. I mean, we could give out two hundred and fifty, but in reality, we're giving out maybe a hundred and twenty. Again, yeah. expecting eighty-five percent success. Yeah, what's a what's a good ratio of? I know you mentioned mature bulls versus the smaller bulls, but what's a good ratio bull to cow for a trophy area? We probably have a very high ratio compared to some areas. We're probably right around fifty percent for just mature bulls, and that you know we try and I do my best to break it down, but that's three years and older. You know, yeah. a breeding bull is probably going to be about three years anyways. Yeah. But um, for the last couple of years, when I'm doing my survey, I try and classify those bulls as, you know, a 300-inch plus or better bull. And right there, we're probably at about 25% of those bulls are 300 inches or better. So, And that's just looking at the ratios. Other data that I collect is actually age data. Mm -hmm. on those bulls every animal that is harvested on the ranch gets aged at least 95 percent of them get aged um the data that i see and is that most bull elk will reach their prime and their growth between the ages of seven and ten so mm. we try and maintain that about eight and a half uh age class for most of the bulls that come in so some are going to be a little bit younger some are going to be older but sure along the on the average that's what we try and go for you know so and it's actually you know when when you think about it 
that that trophy um, designation kind of has a negative connotation. Uh, kind of, but when you when you look at it and you and you look at the numbers behind it that that Lance is talking about, because it's such a unique situation, you you can't really um, plan for that on the pub, on public no, ground because no. they're going to take what they're going to take. And yeah. and not only that, but like one of the things that he just not you know, one of the things that he just explained is there he's able to look at all of the data for all of the animals that are brought in. Yes. And that does not happen at all on um, public land hunts. I mean, we have the harvest report where they're asking things like, you know, did you kill an animal Mm -hmm. and how many many points points, did he have and stuff like that. But I mean, you know, as a biologist, you can have a three-year-old bull that's a six by six or an eight-year-old bull that's a six by six. So we just can't they, they can't get that kind of information that detailed information like you can here so it's a whole no. different management well set. they can but it's it's extremely intensive management yeah. so you look back east where every deer harvested has to go through a check station that they, they, they can do that yeah but it's very intensive management and, yeah. and for a state as big as new mexico and most of the western states they can't do that just because the logistics of it would overwhelm any state agency exactly. with how much they're having to pay to yeah. get that data. Exactly. And so you have to, again, those state agencies managing those public lands are going to have to adjust and use a little bit different model um, to get a handle on what that population yeah. is doing. And to do that, like he said, that becomes trophy management. Yes. And yeah. the vast majority of what's done on public land is opportunity, opportunity. management. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, that what that really what that trophy management allows allows you to do is be extremely selective with what you're taking you know mm-hmm. you, you can tell the guides don't take anything younger than this yeah yeah you know and that in turn helps him maintain that um that ratio yeah, that, yeah, quality yeah, ratio. that quality ratio um, yeah it was it was interesting when i first got here like i mean the data set at this place is amazing. I mean, it goes back at least 30, 35 years, maybe. Wow. There, yeah. I would imagine there are very few ranches or very in few places, places in the United States or in the world that have as an extensive, conti- you know, continuous data set as this of place. some sort. Yeah. yeah, and you know, you looking at the numbers, you see the trophy quality improve. Um, you know, I would look at some historic data and everybody considered a 300 inch bull a trophy. This mm-hmm. was like maybe in the eighties, nineties. And then they start managing for those older bulls and they see the average start moving up a little bit. And so, you know, I always had some, when I first got here, some conversation with some of those older guides and they'd be like, Oh, you're, you're not, we're not doing it right. And this type of stuff. And I said, well, if you think about it this way, Twenty ten years ago, you were trying to, you were turning down three hundred inch bulls to try and get a three twenty. Now you're turning down a three hundred twenty inch bull to get a three hundred forty inch bull. Mm-hmm. So it just takes some time for that, like anything, to yeah. to reach that what you're trying to achieve. And so, like right now, uh, at least for the last couple of years, I tell guests that come here, hunters that are coming here, what to expect, and that's three twenty to three forty. Yeah, you know, and so they kind of have that set in their mind on what to look for. The guides have that in their mind on what to what to look for, and so 
and really the and really you know what the guides are going to be looking for is a mature animal yeah um because that's what you want to harvest um to maintain that that ratio that we have yep so yeah um it's it's an interesting conversation to, to have because um and I, I can already see the backlash that we're going to get on this podcast, <laughs> um, you know. But the trend right now is public land, public land, public land. Yeah. Um, what what most people don't understand is there are some places doing phenomenal work uh, mm-hmm. that's benefiting the scientific co- yeah. community outside of public land, and and private lands can do that. Um, faster, more economically, <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it's just unique situation, and it's great that somebody's doing it. Yeah, and there's a lot to be learned from it. You know, the the public sector can take this kind of data and this kind of information and learn from it, yeah. even if they can't use it specifically or in the exact same way. They can still learn from it. And another thing, like you mentioned earlier, um. This place is is unique because it's so large, um, but there is a lot of places um, you know, down there where I'm from. There's a ranch. It is a large ranch. It's right in the middle of forest, and I know that it has not the type of detail that is yeah. going on here, but it has management. They're 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 doing certain things to uh, increase the quality of the herd, and that also helps the public. Yeah, that spills out on yeah. Because the, those animals same, don't just stay there. Same thing on Vermejo, right? Exactly. Because of the Vivadol, exactly. which yeah. is a once in a lifetime. Yeah, and, and this is, like I said, this one is unique because it's it's so big. Like yeah. you said, yeah. 900 square miles. What's in the center of this is probably never going to go off of it, right? Yeah. But that ranch down there, it is. Yeah. Every elk that is on that ranch at some point in time during the year is off of that ranch. And that... So the management that they're doing that, doing there, does have an effect on the surrounding areas. And there's lots and lots of branches like that across the state. Yeah. I mean, you know. get another good example would be uh, down there in Unit 48, UU Bar. Mm-hmm. They're doing a bunch of management there. Yep. Yep. All that spills over into 48, which Absolutely. is a very popular hunting area. Yeah. Absolutely. So. So, and that just, that goes to what we always talk about. Private land has a place in the ecosystem yeah, and the work that gets done on private land, the hunting that gets done on private land, even though a lot of those tags don't go to the public still benefits public hunting. It is a very important part of it, a very important part of the dynamic of the hunting ecosystem throughout the entire state. And that's what we stress. Yeah. We don't stress the importance of private land over public land. We express, we, we express the, um, inclusion and the necessity, yeah, the necessity of, of both the ecosystem. Yeah. I think I, I want to hold that thought because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to do a call out real quick to talk about <laughs> something that Lance already did, but I want to hold that thought because, uh, I, I do want Lance to talk about the habitat work that yes. gets done. But, um, Lance was talking about how across the West, the study that there are studies that have shown that, um, a certain, ratio for like for example um elk calf recruitment it shows this is increasing this is stable this is decreasing sure so i had a 
I guess you could call it an argument on Facebook the other day <laughs> with a, a group called Trap Free New Mexico. And uh, they were um, hassling me that there was had never been a bobcat population study in New Mexico. And I said, well, there doesn't have to be. Um, this is how you know, this is how science works. Arizona did a study. Oklahoma did a study. Arizona is very similar geographically, ecologically yeah. to us. So what New Mexico can then do as a scientific community is take that study and uh, loosely apply the principles of that study to New Mexico because that's how science works. Yeah. And that's exactly what Lance is saying. That's done over and over again in the yes. scientific yeah. community. Mm-hmm. Somebody does a study in Utah and we say, okay, let's look at the parameters of the study. Um, do, does it reasonably fit this area in New Mexico? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. We think we should probably start implementing some of those results into our management program. Yeah. And, and you can, you can extrapolate that with a very small, uh, collection of data. Absolutely. You know, you know, that that's, you look at, like you said, you look at that study, you get a small sample size here and then just model it. And that's what you get. And not yeah. only that, and Lance, you know, I, I've, been through got my master's in range science so i did the same thing as you did that's what other studies are based on you have to i mean the first thing you do whenever you start to build a study is you go back and you look at all the different documentation of other studies and say what have these said and how can i use that to guide my study in this specific instance so yeah i mean it was, it, it, I mean, you use the data that's out there as much as possible, but at some point, it's always good to have your own data. As Absolutely, well. yeah. 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 I mean, like you said, you can collect some stuff from like Utah and see how it applies to this area. Well, Utah's, you know, is plateau country, sure, sagebrush country. So, but it gives you a basis from where to yeah, start. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you can you can kind of compare while they're seeing, say, like a decline in elk recruitment. What are their factors? What are they seeing? Oh, well, this area has an increase in predators. Well, then we're kind of seeing a little bit more bears than normal, a little bit more, a little less calves than normal. Maybe we should start looking at that as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, and we do, I mean, we look at a lot of stuff in terms of not just the elk numbers, but we also look at the, the health condition of the herd, you mm-hmm. know, I think that's one of the biggest thing is, well, how are the, how is the elk herd across the board health wise? Um, so in the winter we collect body fat indices from all the cow elk that are brought in as well. Pregnancy rates that ty- and, um, uh, uh, lactation rates and, and just to get an idea on how the herd is doing overall health wise. So that's just another amazing data set that this place has. So, yeah. And that can tell you a lot. I mean, if you're if you're seeing pregnancy rates that are high in the winter and I'm talking de- January, December, January, but then you're seeing a low ratio in September, you know, 85% across the board pregnancy rates in January, then all of a sudden you figure, well, okay, most of those are going to be born in May, June. So, but then you're only seeing 20 to 25% calves in September there might be a problem. And the more yeah. of those data sets that you can collect, the more of the things that you can kind of mark off, you, you know, yeah. it's not, it's not nutritional because if it's nutritional, you'd be seeing 
um, pregnancy rates drop. Pregnancy rate, yeah. You know. It's not age. I mean, cows, as they age, they're going to either, if they're healthy enough, they're going to get pregnant, but not every year. And that's usually, our data says that after the age of 10, you know, a a cow probably won't get pregnant maybe every other year. just depends on how how (laughs) she is nutritionally. But um, between the ages of 3 and 7, they're probably going to get pregnant and raise a calf every year, at least bear a calf every year. Not to say that that calf's going to survive. So yeah, but. and then coming back to kind of what I was saying before is you use you use some of that. So you know he's obviously gathering data for for himself uh, that starts marking off. Okay, it's probably not this. It's probably not this. But then you also start looking at those studies done elsewhere. For example, uh, Southwest Colorado just yeah. had kind of a crash in their elk herd, and their their calf recruitment was. I think it does in the low teens, low maybe. Teens. And yeah. so they're going, oh, what the heck is it? Um, I don't know if they've ever, if they have figured out yet what it is, but that's something that you, you start looking at and say, okay, if we continue to have a pattern of low recruitment, is what they learn from that, can can we start looking at those factors here? And, and are we starting to match that up? Yeah. So. And that that kind of stuff plays into other decisions as well, like, predator hunting mm-hmm. stuff like that you know colorado's got the ballot initiative and i don't have we haven't followed up on that to see what what happened with the wolves in colorado well it's not till not to the november yeah. election yeah. so but um you know you've got low recruitment and elk numbers like that and they're fixing to think about putting wolves out on the, the western slope uh, yeah, yeah out on the western slope and that you know, th- those things tie together, Absolutely. you know, so you can't, you can't look at one without considering the other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like you always have to consider, well, what's human take plus the, the natural predator take. And so what's the herd number that can sustain both sides? You know, that's, that's the biggest thing that you have to, that I try and take into consideration. What is our, what can our elk population handle? Otherwise, you know, you put too much top-down yeah. pressure it's it's going to collapse on you so what kind of what kind of studies do you do here on the on the predator take side of it um those are actually really hard unless you have collared uh prey mm-hmm. i mean you could follow them around um once you get a mortality signal from a say like an elk calf then you go in and, and investigate what actually killed that that individual um one of the fun things that I've always wanted to do was a predator study, fall around actually collaring up a predator mm-hmm. and see how they, what their diet is, whether it's a mountain lion or a black bear. Um, you learn a lot by that as well. So, um, and then, I mean, right now we mostly just concentrate on the elk herd, but I think it's time for us to probably look at the predator side of things. Cause like I said, we've, this elk herd has been, as high as 12,000 animals, I think. Mm-hmm. And we saw habitat degradation, you know, no riparian areas were, were all mowed down. Um, and then no aspen regeneration. Well, for the last, since I've been here, we've seen uh, riparian areas recover. We've seen aspen regeneration in some areas. So um, we've brought it, they've brought it down before I got here. It was close to 8,000 animals, and right now we're probably about 6,900 animals. So um, 
they've done a lot here prior to me and so it's kind of like been an ideal or a little bit of pressure to kind of maintain that yeah that quality and and that alcard where is that that fine line that the alcard can be sustainable for not just the natural predators but human take as well and not do so much damage to the habitat so right and all while considering all the other factors like drought and weather and the fact that they have other ungulates using the same landscape bison, bison deer, deer everything uh, horses, else yeah um you know pronghorn even we even include prairie dogs in our carrying capacity oh wow yeah so it, it's it's how we it's how we manage it's we manage to what the ranch can support in an average dry year and so that's where we kind of set the baseline number so which is about 7000 animals 7500 animals so yeah so um Lance coming back to kind of what we we put a pin in just a little bit earlier tell us about some of the habitat work that's been going on um since you've been here since i've been here um we do a lot of uh logging there's been some timber work uh, mainly for habitat improvement and fire break um, the last couple of years we've got that's a novel idea by yeah, the way right yeah. California <laughs> <laughs> no comment <laughs> but uh, we've done that we've done some prescribed burning uh, with the help of uh, the Nature Conservancy and some other private uh, entities we've done some small burns maybe 500 acres total um, trying to get those a little bit bigger and more frequent trying to bring back that natural fire cycle into the Ponderosa forest. A lot of water improvement, um, either converting a lot of those old windmills to solar wells or ref or fixing the, so the windmills, providing water sources. I think next year we're going to try and actually do some rain catchment uh, water sources in some areas of the ranch. Those are pretty prevalent down there in 34, right? Um, yeah, down in, down in southern New Mexico, um, as a whole, you know, not just, yeah. not just 34, but, um, 36, 37, it's, it's, there's a lot in 37. Yeah. Um, I'm actually kind of excited to see what that produces here. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, they're, they're, they're handy. They're, yeah. they're real nice. Yeah. They have some of our, on our, on our reservation, they've been probably there for like, I don't know, 10 years and the animals use them. I mean, yeah. the, the guy that the biologist there, he sent pictures of, black bears and quail and deer um i don't know coyotes you know everything yeah. every, water is life water is life yeah. here so, in new mexico yeah so people fight over it yeah yeah so, yeah, it, yeah i can imagine that it's got to help so 37 uh and so on a place like this um and, and again it's it's a very unique situation so when you look at like an area like 37 or 34 or something you've got Lots of public and private, you know, checkerboarded kind of things. And in a particular in a dry year, when all the dirt tanks dry up, um, your water is mostly either, you know, creeks or man-made. It groups the animals because, like you said, water is life. Mm -hmm. And the animals have to come to water. Um, but by putting those, what we call them as trick tanks, um, it spreads them back out, Yeah, you yeah. know. And and now not everything is just grouped up, and and I'd imagine that that's got to have effects on a lot of things, like you like you're talking mm -hmm. about your riparian areas and your 
your habit your your um, grasses and trees and stuff yeah. like that by spreading them out and not having yeah, them all that's in the goal of all those, those the water sources is to keep them spread out cause, yep. you know in the past we've seen them congregate along the the creeks and bottom the creek ri- and rivers and stuff and they'll yeah. they'll hang out there until they get pushed out yeah so but, um other work uh those are probably the, the two main things or the three main things is the is the logging and the prescribed fire and the water resources so you're also doing some work um with the aspen region and willow region right yeah we've done some uh people look at them and i kind of joke and say well that's that's the high end high fence hunting area if you pay enough then you can go in there but <laughs> technically it it is a it, it's a what ungulate exposure and it it's that benefits the trout habitat on the ranch um by excluding the ungulates that would normally hang around the riparian area by keeping them out, it gives the chance for the alders, the willows, the cottonwoods to grow and actually cool the creek down, uh, making it more habitual for or more more prime habitat. Pro- more prime habitat for trout. With, yeah. And here, I mean, we have probably one of the lar- we have the largest uh, Rio Grande cutthroat population just on the on the waters here at Bermejo so um, that's been going on we have I think each exclosure is about a mile of stream uh, exclosed and I mean we it's amazing to see once you remove that ungulate pressure just how fast some of that that riparian area can come back I I know we've done some cottonwood pole planting um, and those have taken hold but the willows to come back on their own. It, it's pretty amazing to watch that right. cover. And that's, um, that's, I, I find that really interesting for two, two reasons. One, you're putting up high fence to keep animals out, yep. which is not in the hunting world, not what you're thinking of yep. high fence. You're thinking of keeping animals in Two, It's been, it's been quite a while back, but I read an article about the wolves in Yellowstone and how one of the great things that it was doing they was did, keeping the elk. They did a video that talked about how the wolves healed Yellowstone. Yeah, yeah. keeping the elk off of that, allowing it to um, flow deeper and faster and make it better. Yeah, which is exact opposite. Yeah, deeper and faster is not not better. better. No, <laughs> that's not what you strive for. Riparian but it, it's just areas are meandering. Exactly, yeah, meandering, it's just yeah. it's just a great example of misinformation that gets yeah. put out there. You know, I watched that whole video and I was thinking, well, that's very interesting because that's not what you think of. But yeah. but that was the thing. The wolves are down there, so now the elk aren't. Now naturally, you don't want that, but that's not what's happening. No, you don't want them out down there, but there's not. It's not to keep them from breaking it up and making it meander. Well, it's we're not not getting into the yeah. wolf debate. Um, I think wolves do have a place, but sure. we're not getting into that debate. What I actually because I worked at, in the Grovon up up in Jackson Hole mm-hmm. for two summers. What I actually saw was in in the wintertime, those wolves would concentrate those animals on the riparian areas. But outside of that, I also read an article talking about, and it'll be interesting to get your input on this. There was a study done by um, a professor out of Utah State where they did exclosures up there uh-huh. um, in Yellowstone. And they've, they said basically the, the ungulate pressure had minimal impact on 
um, on the regeneration of willows. What it really was was they started to do thinning and reintroducing fire into the habitat, and willows basically like to have their toes in the water. Mm-hmm. And so the increase in the water into the water system was really kind of what spurred the regeneration. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, th- I think it probably has, both of them play a little bit of, a little bit of, um, and I've been saying that for years, if we need to knock some of these trees back and get yeah. some more water back into the, yeah. into the system. The other interesting thing, um, well, I don't know. Tell me what, what you, had you, have you read that study? I haven't read that study, but I mean, the cool thing about these exclosures that I've seen is, I mean, was it two days ago we flew over one of the headwaters and there was two or three beaver ponds? Nice. They moved in on their own, so and they're using those resources as well, slowing yeah. the water, letting it cool down, making better trout habitat. So that's that was a benefit of yeah. of, of the work that that these exclosures have created. So, and I will say, I've, you know, I've seen. Um, seeing these explosions, I think you started them seven years ago. Yeah, been just doing about basically one every year, two or three every year. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, you can kind of start at the head where they started and kind of see the progression of the willows coming up. It's it's pretty interesting yeah. to see because you can see it progress. Yeah. Yeah. We're gonna after we get done with our flights tomorrow, if the weather holds up, we're gonna probably go take some aerial photos of those explosions too. Yeah. Sure. And, reference yeah and then the other thing i was going to say was that 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 regeneration of willows has allowed those beavers to move back in yeah. mm-hmm. that were traditionally here and like lance was talking about those are um beavers are depending on who you talk to are good <laughs> or bad yeah you know down down in taos uh, where they plug up the asequias they're they're the devil and, <laughs> and they need to be all killed and taken out but up here, with the, with, you know, with what they're trying to do, bringing back native the natural um, <laughs> cycle and the native species, um, they create these ponds, which holds the water and releases it slower, which keeps it cooler longer, uh, benefiting that trout habitat. So yeah. it's really nice. Nice to see that. And they're showing up outside of the exposures, too. Yeah. I mean, we've had a couple downstream from our headquarters and just all up and down the, the Vermejo River. So. Yep. Um, so tell us a little bit about the modeling and kind of how that works. Um, you told us about how you get the numbers and, and just kind of tell us how your modeling works as far as population and different types of surveys that you do. Cause you do aerial for elk. I do aerial for elk. Um, trying to find the right survey for mule deer um you can always do a road survey but that's biased you're not you're just the area is fairly thick and so you can only see so many um aerial surveys are expensive Uh, helicopter time is really expensive so that's kind of it's been talked about but it's probably not an option um you're starting to i'm starting to see work using game cameras more often um there was a study out of montana that um the student developed a model population model based off of camera data um i've tried that but the math is a little bit beyond me so i have to get some help with that but and it's a lot of work i mean it's a lot of photos you're talking tens of thousands of photos depending on on what you set your camera at so and having 
started this podcast and trying to put content out, I can tell you that takes so much time to go through all that crap. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, you think you're going to do it on a rainy day or snowy day, and it's like... You get yeah. about 500 photos in, you're like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so our model is, is just based off of the observations that, we, that I see from the air, the total counts, the ratios of the cows and the calves, and then it also takes into account you know, survivability of both the cows and the calves and the bulls, which is just an estimate. I mean, it's, it's not exact. Um, you'll never get a true survival estimate unless you have collared animals. Yeah. Um, it takes into account the number of animals that we harvest, um, both the, both calves, cows, and bulls. Um, I, the way I make my harvest recommendations is I actually kind of run scenarios based on different cow calf ratios um low medium high like that declining population of 20 percent the midi the mid the mid you know stable of 30 to 35 percent and then an increasing recruitment of 45 percent um and then that's kind of how i set our harvest numbers for the ranch and and just kind of base it off of our harvest percentage of 85 percent across the board so how how often, if ever, do you use? I didn't see anything out there this season. <laughs> from who? <laughs> That's the question. From who? Right? Because right. it, it's like if it if it comes from a a guest or a guide, then I kind of laugh and be like, "Well, you just gotta hunt harder." Right. But <laughs> but that that then it's 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 like. You know, we've we kind of, with the effort that they made to reduce the the elk herd here, we've we've changed their habits, yeah, their daily habits, their movement habits. They're not near the road. I know I I hear I hear complaints from longtime guests like, oh, well, you used to be able to just drive down the road and there'd be elk everywhere, yep. and, and I'm yep. like, well, you know. There also wasn't beaver. Yeah, there was yeah. no beaver. There was uh, it's, no it, aspen. It's an bear, ecosystem, yeah. not just an elk herd. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, I just kind of take it in and just say, well, we just got to look a little bit harder. Right. So. Um, the only reason I ask that is in jest because that's what you hear. Yeah. Um, there are places, um, Unit 34, I know that the deer numbers are down. Okay. You know, I I know because it's a year after year after year after year decline in not just one spot, but a lot of spots. Yeah. But there's still deer there. There's still plenty of their deer there. We still, you know, I know my family has taken some really good deer mm-hmm. um, out of that forest. So I know they're still there. You just got to hunt for them. Mm-hmm. But you hear that a lot, yeah. especially, you know, like me and Kyle doing this podcast and on social media and stuff. Yeah. We hear that a lot. The populations are down so bad. Um, it's this and it's that. And, of course, we're all, I, I guess we just call them armchair biologists. Yeah. You know, because we're just, we go out one Sunday afternoon into an area where last year we saw 50 deer and this year we saw five. And, well, all of a sudden there's no more deer left. Yeah. You know. Um, and for the most part, they were out there for the week. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So well, then it's, it's, I mean. The time of year that you went out there is totally different. Sure. You could go out there in the summer, and, yeah, there's 50 deer hanging out there. Yep. You go back during hunting season when, 
how many trucks have driven by that area or right. how many times right. have been shot at. Yeah, of course, exactly. You know. Yeah. So it's, it just, it's funny to me. I mean, yeah. like I said, it, in 34, I know that there's, my buddy's got a ranch down there. It's, it's a seven section spread, so it's not huge, but it's, it's decent. Okay, yeah. Um, and he's went, I know that I hunted it with him years ago and there was plenty of deer mm-hmm. and I know past two or three years they've seen zero zero yeah. so you know that there's something, something. you know because they're there all the time yeah. um but like i said the comments that we mostly yeah. get are, are of that variety well last year i've seen a lot but now i haven't seen any this year and yeah you know we hunted 37 a few years ago um and came across a lot of elk and this year i didn't yeah you know yeah. but i don't attribute that to the elk population i attribute it to how far I got out, how often I got out and the weather and all of, all of, there's so many factors. It's not just, I didn't see them. So they're not there. Yeah. It just, that's not the way it goes. But no, it's, I mean, you see, like I said, we, the pressure that they've put on these elk in the past has changed their habits. Like once we're done hunting bull elk, they're out there. Like, you know, you count, 50 60 bulls just going down one of the main canyons in the morning those the cow elk they see a vehicle they're gone, they're gone. <laughs> i mean they they won't stick around they're like right now though they might stick around but come that first shot they're yeah. gone you know yeah so they we've become the wolves basically we've, yeah we've changed their habitat yeah. so yeah or their habits but i mean we all experience it i'm a public land hunter Personally, um, I might work on private land, but I've always been a public land hunter, so I know that experience. And when, and then when people say that here that there's no animals, I'm like, you just <laughs> went out for a morning or for a day and didn't see anything. Try going out for five days and not seeing anything. Right. So, Six <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 I saw one, that two bulls. that yeah. unit was supposed to be. You know, pretty good. We was expecting that to be a good hunt, and man, yeah. it was just tough. And I don't blame the elk population. I just, yeah. and I dang sure don't blame how hard we hunted. No. It was just, it's just one of those. It's hunting. Well, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the world of hunting. Yeah. It's just like just what you talk about the pressure. I mean, those animals aren't dumb. Yeah. When, the, when the pressure's on, um, you know that six C borders the Via Caldera. Where are those animals going? Well, let's yeah. go into the Via Caldera. Yeah. They can't mm-hmm. shoot us there. Well, yeah. they can, but. And they do, yeah, but not near as much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you, I, I saw a post today. I like to follow um, John Dudley and Jocko Willick on social media. And, you know, they were talking about the, the ups and downs of hunting. And, you know, last year, Jocko Willick, decorated Navy SEAL guy, he's one of my, I like to read a lot of his stuff. But anyway, he was very successful, just got an archery probably like the last four years got his bull last year this year empty tag you know Mm -hmm. same area that they hunted last year and he got to experience what most of us experience and Mm -hmm. and i think it was on private land so i mean it's it's just what hunt it comes to down that's what hunting's about you know yeah yeah um for so like for your pronghorn you don't do aerial surveys um, you get you do a windshield survey basically. Right? Yeah, we do a a, a road survey. Yeah. Um, it's fairly accurate. I use a, a model or a computer program used called distance sampling, um, and that 
two, we just look at the ratios of bonds to n bucks and based our, our get a, a rough estimate of the, our pronghorn population is, um, and and make our harvest recommendations off of that as well. So yeah, you you got to talk a little bit about pronghorn in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a small population. I guess it's probably about a hundred to one hundred twenty animals that run around up here at seventy five hundred feet. I mean, running through the Ponderosa. I've actually, I've seen them higher and had reports of them up in the Costilla Basin. But, I mean, it's something to see a pronghorn it run through the Ponderosa trees. You know, you're just like, and they do it like it's nothing. I mean, yeah. they just dodge everything, take off. And I've seen them, and they bed in the trees. It, mm-hmm. it's, and it's interesting. That's one of the things that I would like to look at, why they're doing so well up here. There's more predators up here. There's bears, mountain lion, coyotes, bobcats, and how they compare to survival down on the prairie where it's mm-hmm. probably mainly coyotes and, and you know, maybe an eagle or two down there. Yeah. So, now I, but I, I think what I heard is that we had a drought here in 2011, 2012, and so they just basically followed the canyon up, found a spot, you know, found a little niche up here and, and decided to stay. Just, just stuck around. Yeah. Well, and it's unique. Um, and the vi- we're not we're you know, Vermejo's not alone. The, mm-hmm. the Vivadol's got a, a resident herd up yeah. there that stays up there all winter too. But mm-hmm. it's unique in that the the terrain kind of allows that because it's a kind of a an open, open park land. Park, yeah. Yeah. Um, with uh, interspersing of of the ponderosa yeah, and yeah. stuff so if i'm not mistaken they're doing a study on that herd up there in the vivadol that uh i don't know if it's in the vivadol or if they're doing a herd over there was one in unit four yeah somewhere up there uh, over in farm is that farmington area or san san antonio no, chaman, chaman. Yeah. that's right yeah so i don't think it's the vivadol maybe they're planning to bring the vivadol into heard it. into the study but they started it over in unit four yeah gotcha and but they yeah. have another high elevation herd there. yeah just they're, very very interesting they're, they're yeah. studying those dynamics so yeah it'll be inter- interesting to see yeah i like to see just how often they like what is the the tipping point on when when they got to move down and then when they what brings them up do they follow what they call the green wave so as as in the spring as the the grasses start to grow, they start moving their way up north and the snow melts and stuff like that. So yeah. I think it's pretty neat. I remember the first time seeing them, I was like, they're not supposed to be here. You're right. here. <laughs> well, I think it, I think it's maybe a testament to, um, what we've talked about many times on this, on this, um, podcast. Wildlife management is, is messy. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're we're very audacious as humans who've been recording things for the last hundred years to say this is what we know. You really don't know anything. No. We just say we know. Just it. observing. Yeah. yeah, we're just observing. And so, you know, um, everybody when everybody thinks about elk, what do they think of? They think high mountains, uh, you know, yeah. elk in the aspens, aspens, all of that, all that stuff. Plains animal. Plains animal. Plains animal. Yeah. Yeah. And and they're moving further and further out into the plains. Mm-hmm. Um, talked to a guy this summer who said they're killing elk in Dalhart, Texas. 
Wow. <laughs> Dude, I saw yeah. it. Out in the I, farm fields. Yeah. I saw a motorcycle hit an elk out in the flats towards Holloman Air Force Base. Yeah. 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 So it's just a really interesting because we, you know, we always talk about what we know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I always continually remind myself and others, we really don't know that much. Oh, yeah. Um, we're, we're constantly surprised by what, by what animals are doing. Yeah. G- Game of Fish had a bear that they collared on Vermejo. Went all, Went the, way. all the way to Castle Rock, Colorado, just south of Denver, and came back yeah. in yeah. two years. Yeah. I mean, incredible. They, yeah. had, they collared yeah. a mountain lion in New Mexico that ended up in California. Yeah. Incredible and stuff. Yeah. Technology is, and you can probably speak to that, technology has got to be just changing the game. Oh, on yeah. how we learn and and I mean before it was just you know your regular VHF collars, but once they started putting GPS collars on animals, it just changed everything. Yeah, because you could actually pinpoint their locations, and now they have collars where where you can if for predator prey dynamics, if you had a collared prey animal or multiple predators, how often do they? come in close contact with each other and you'll get notified by that and i think that would be yeah i mean is there a bear that's specifically seeking out mountain lion kills and he's just following them around or you know that type of stuff or how often is a is a bear moving into an elk herd to try and stalk the elk calves or kill yeah. elk calf it's pretty neat i mean just as technology advances i think we learn more and more and it's, it's funny that you said that they what was it like two or three years ago they saw elk in South Valley of Albuquerque. Yeah. Yep. Right there on Rio Bravo and Coors. Mm-hmm. There's an alfalfa field and somebody took a picture of an elk there. Mm-hmm. And so they move. I mean it's 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 amazing what they they're capable of doing. Yeah. When they want to go, they're gonna go. So. Yeah. Yeah. No stopping. Yeah. Um. So that that's a really kind of a, a good transition because I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, your your you said your your interest and your kind of your passion was that. That predator prey dynamic and and so um what was your thesis on my my thesis was on uh elk calf mortality study it was the main part um back in 2009 um new mexico game and fish came to the vice caldera their surveys had show, shown low elk calf recruitment so they did uh they radio tagged uh, and I got on board with that project, and we we radio tagged elk calves and followed followed them around for a year. Turned out, um, you know, followed them. Those that died went in and investigated um, what the cause of death was. Um, for most part, it was large predators, black bears spe- specifically, followed by coyotes and then mountain lions. Um, was what that data set showed, you know, and it. Every area is going to change based on what the predator population is or the predators in the area. You know, there was a big study prior to mine up in Yellowstone, and they thought that wolves were going to be a big predator of outcasts. Well, it was still black bears, bears and grizzly bears. So, I mean, basically, a black bear or any type of bear is is a good predator of a young ungulate. So. Yeah. yeah. But um, that's that was my... My main thing, I also looked at, did some uh, blood testing for diseases to make sure that there wasn't a disease issue going on, at least at least exposure. I, I just tested for titers and so on harvested animals. So. Very cool. But, Very yeah. cool. And they, I mean, they, 
I don't know, maybe they were, I didn't know that they had done that study in the Via Caldera, but I know because I was on that study they did in the Vivadol, I guess they kind of piggybacked and yeah, it did was, a study it, in the Vivadol and partly on Vermejo. Yeah, I think um, it was going on the same time as the both, study, both studies were going on at the same time. Um, and then they did some collaring uh, or radio tagging of elk calves on Vermejo. Um, and then uh, at the same time, so found basically the same thing and that's kind of what spurred the uh the spring bear hunt yeah in the vibe doll so um it's it's a fascinating dynamic to kind of see um how those studies influence those management decisions yeah. and and not just like in the short term but in the long term you know seeing management decisions that were made based off of certain studies and then all of a sudden 10 20 years down the road, you see a kind of almost a complete reversal of yeah. saying, okay, maybe this is not working. Let's relook at it. And, uh, you know, coming back to talking about wildlife management and, uh, you got a visitor, <laughs> um, wildlife management and, and wildlife biology. It's, it's such a hard science because you're working with old data, the old data, trying to re- predict what the animals are going to do <laughs> with any number of variables that you cannot control yeah um and you just you just do the best that you can and it's, it's adaptive, it management. adaptive management that's yeah, the best way to put it yeah. i mean you do something for a few years and and if it the results aren't there then you got to change look at what you did and then you got to change the change at something different and just yep. just work with it you know Sometimes it's hard. You want results immediately, but it it takes two or three years to see yeah. those results, and some people don't like that. I mean, it's we're kind of like a right here, right now, especially in today's day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you know, it, it's like instant no, gratification. Yeah, it, it's it's one of the reasons <clears throat> we done a couple of podcasts um, earlier in the year uh, last year. Um, one was about the changes to the antelope, um, which we're still following. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in season one, probably the changes to the to the elk elk rule, um, and of course this all has mostly to do with public land, but um, the elk, well, both. Yeah. I mean, it has private and public, but um, they were such drastic changes that I think that's why they made me nervous. Is because they were huge changes. Oh yeah, and and that's exactly it. Like you said, you if you're doing something for a while and it's not working, you got to change. Well, it seems to me like you would want to make changes slowly, mm-hmm. rather than just a drastic change, um, like with what they did specifically to the antelope. Now the elk wasn't drastic, but um, small changes throughout a course of time to see how it goes, rather than just great big changes and. Oh, let's just cross our fingers and see what happens in the next yeah, four years. <laughs> yeah, and and I I know exactly where you're coming from, but you also and you know Lance can probably talk to this a little bit, but you also have to remember that, particularly in state agencies, um, some sometimes especially now you don't have the longevity of personnel in that position, and so you may have an elk biologist come in and they're in that position four or five years, and then they promote or they leave and they go to a different you know state or whatever it is 
And so oftentimes what happens and why you get the big changes is you have a change in personnel over a period of time and you basically the new people haven't done their homework and don't know what was done in the past. So they're like, Oh, I heard about this study. Let's do this. Oh, I I get it. I just don't care. I know. I I don't (laughs) want to see those huge giant changes. I I like shit to move slowly. But I think it's important (laughs) for people to understand that that's generally a lot of times what happens is is you don't have that longevity versus, you know, um, so, I think more yeah. of what happens is not enough public hunters show up to those meetings that and voice too. their opinion. Absolutely, that happens <laughs> um, too. But, but yeah, it, 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 one thing, though, that I think that this podcast has definitely illustrated is one of the things, one of the comments that we get all the time or that we see all the time is everything is based on money. Mm-hmm. We've been sitting here, and, yeah, you did mention, um, you know, trophy hunts and, yeah. and all of that stuff, but... Uh, and, and specifically on private land, um, revenue is going to be an important thing. Yeah. But that is not what everything is based on. When you're doing these studies and you're looking at all of this stuff, not one time that I mentioned him say dollar values. You know, he's looking at numbers and he's looking at the uh, um, uh, impact on the habitat and predators and this, that, and the other. And that's, to me, that's how the science goes. Yes, money is important. Yes, the revenue is important. It's important on private land, and it's important at the Department of Game and Fish. Um, but that's not what it's about. Yeah. Uh, and to speak and, to that, it's, again, Vermejo is is fairly unique because they have mm-hmm. the ability to, to do that. There are places all across the country and all across the world where, you know, they don't, they don't, we got Anna in the next room, so... Anna, this is a shout out to you. In Texas, you know, they don't really care. They'll <laughs> right? just kill whatever and they'll yeah. buy some new stuff yeah. and put it Throw on the high fence. Exactly. Um, I, I remember yeah. going to Texas one time. Well, when I was a grad student at Tech, we visited this ranch and one of the one of my fellow students asked the ranch manager, Well, what do you do when, when you get more animals? They're just like, We just up the feed bill. Yeah. That was mm-hmm. that was like the weirdest answer I've ever heard. It's like it's nothing for them. It's yeah. totally yeah. different. But yeah. but you look at sound scientific management, and that's how it's supposed to be done. Yeah. The, the the money doesn't play into it. Correct. But mm-hmm. and and another point on that though too is, um, private land and public land, a healthy herd is going to bring more money. Absolutely. Yeah. Period. Period. I don't care. Yeah. And and the the agencies know that. Be it the landowner or the Department of Game and Fish, healthy herds, good populations, good hunting. Is going to bring more money. Absolutely. Period. Yeah. So it's just not a valid argument to me. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. I mean, I I know you didn't like some of the changes, but the changes for if a landowner is doing it properly, they can manage that herd to their specifics. And then mm-hmm. again, it, it like you said, it benefits the, the public side. Um, you know, if every program that we participate in, we have to show proof on the habitat work that, that we're doing, um, the harvesting that we're doing. And that just shows that the landowner cares about what he's doing, what yeah. the wildlife bring, have that value for him. It's not, yeah, it's a money value, but I mean, he's putting forth his time, his effort. 
Yeah. And, and creating habitat and creating water sources and that type yeah. of stuff. Yeah. You're, you're not going to find a bigger advocate for for the private land sector inside of hunting than yeah. us. I mean, we, we are, both of us really think that it's an important part of it. Yeah. Um, with the antelope thing, and I don't want to really hash out the whole antelope no, thing. No, what scared think, me is I that. I think it's important to, to denote that, you know, we've had other comments from, from other landowners saying, oh, it's been really good for us. I think if, the, and I absolutely think that if the landowner's doing it right, it's really beneficial for them. Oh. What we're, what we were worried about was the effect on the public land. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> you're putting three, almost three times, times the amount of yeah. people on the public land. And it actually was really interesting when we did that podcast about the antelope system, we expected the harvest rate to go down and it hasn't. No. And so you're harvesting way, Ooh, way more antelope than has way been. More past. Yeah. <laughs> We we looked at those numbers, and I don't know if you've looked at them, uh-uh. but so and, and we, of course we did the whole podcast about that. And that when you look at the harvest report numbers, so we took the last year, the last two years, when um, private landowners couldn't hunt as many as they wanted, and you know, uh, and the harvester rate rates were right about seventy eight percent, seventy seven percent, yeah. And the first year of the new system, it was the same. Oh, really? <laughs> so you've got that many more tags on public land mm-hmm. with the same number of harvests. Well, the same percentage, which means actually more animals. Yeah. And so many more of them were bucks. Hmm. So many more of them were bucks. Yeah. And so the total number of bucks taken off of private land was... Across the board, it was, across the board, it actually increased was much, was, yeah, was was much larger, oh, wow. um, and, and so and the you know the biggest reason that that we worry about it being armchair biologists as we are, <laughs> yeah, um, is having read what I've read about pronghorn is they're far more susceptible to those population crashes yeah, than yeah, exactly. other species, and so it's like, mm-hmm. whoo, yeah, seeing those numbers, you're like. When, when is it going to crash? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. what we were feared of as, as happening, yeah. and even in greater numbers than we were, yeah. were, yeah. were afraid of. So we're, we're tracking it because it's very interesting yeah, to us. And like, like he said, we're, we're armchair bio- biologists here, but we are, we are – I'll give us credit in, in this. We do look at the numbers. We yeah. do study the information that's put out. Granted, we're not the ones out there doing the studies, but, but we are looking at – how many people are putting it in, yeah. how many people are harvesting, what's being harvested, where it's being harvested as compared to previous years. Yeah. So we're not just saying, yep, I didn't see as many antelope this year. That new system sucks. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So, so I'll give us credit in that, but it, it, I, I still am very scared about the new antelope system. And I know, I know one of the things that they were wanting to do was knock down the numbers of antelope. That was a goal, and they are achieving it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, for sure. So, but it was a world class herd, and you hate to lose that world class herd. Yeah, anything world class in New Mexico, you really want to keep it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, any parting thoughts there, Lance? Appreciate you being on. No, it's fun to be here. It's my second podcast. Second, nice. Who was your first one with? It was with Blue Collar 
elk. Oh, nice. The elk Joe, yeah, Joe, we're, Joe Gillia. Joe G, we're hoping to. We're trying to get him on. Yeah, um, yeah we're hoping to kind of do a collaboration, do a podcast with him. Yeah. Um, He's the, he does a real good job in terms of teaching people how to hunt elk through yeah. his his elk teaching system. Or yeah, I think a lot of people. He's a good guy too. Yeah, local guy. So. Yeah, definitely. But definitely a better elk hunter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah, forty eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. but no, I appreciate it. Um, it's been fun. I hopefully get to come back again. We'll talk about something different. Heck yeah. Yes, next time you come back. We're going to have to, so if you didn't know this about Lance, yeah, he went to Sheep Show and he <laughs> won the less than 1% drawing and got to f- take a desert bighorn down in Mexico. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. So, was, you're, so you're not a less than one member anymore. Not anymore. I'm a, one, a 25% member. member. There, you, there you are. <laughs> so uh, Excellent. We'll have to have him tell that story next time. Yeah. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. I'd love to hear it. All right. Thanks for joining, man. Yep. No problem. Adios. Adios, right. guys. Thanks for joining Not a Grande Outdoors podcast. Come follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And don't forget about our website, www.notagrandeoutdoors.com. Adios. Adios.